So do you want something greater? Then you have to ask yourself, what lies at the center? It's not uncommon for us to settle for things in life and we decide that we can manage with what we have or with a situation the way it is, whether it's in our work or in our hobbies or even in our relationships. We will often come to a place where we get comfortable with things the way they are. And it's not necessarily a bad thing unless it gets in the way of something greater, something more important. And I often like to joke that I love it when people settle for things because that's why my wife married me. <laughs> but there's a big difference between settling for something and walking with something. Settling for something means that we just give up and kind of accept things the way they are and that they're not really going to change. Walking with something means that we engage in something, recognizing that there is something greater to come out of it. Relationships are one of the biggest examples of this. They, never, they can never really stay the same. They, are, they either grow or they die. And the beauty of this is that when they grow, you end up with something much greater than what you started out with. So going back to my joke about my wife settling for me, first of all, I know she didn't. She chose me. And there's something a lot more amazing about that idea. And the same is true of our God. He doesn't settle for us or just passively accept us and overlook what we've done. He chooses us and works with us and in us and through us. And that is even more amazing. So going back to my idea of our marriage is that we also didn't get into the marriage with the idea that things would stay the same. It's the nature of relationships that they change and grow that lies in the midst of them. The knowledge that something greater lies ahead. So I ask you again to look at your life, your relationships, and your relationship with Jesus and ask yourself, do you want something deeper? Do you want something greater? Then we need to look at what is at the center of your life. So before I go on, let's read the passage today, which is John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. And it says, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words he had spoken. So before we go too far, we need to remember some important details that's going on in this 
We need to look at some things that Alan has mentioned previously, and we also need to look at some things that are coming up later in the next few chapters of John. And then we also need a little bit more background on the temple to really understand what this is about. So first off, you might remember that Alan talked about the Gospel of John being written something like a court case argument, where John is laying out arguments for why Jesus is the Son of God. And it's important to remember that, that all these things that are written in the Gospel are, G are John I, laying out arguments about this is the Son of God, this is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. The other thing you may remember him referring to was this debate between him and Dave about whether there was one cleansing of the temple or two. And I'm referring to this as the Dunker Jones paradox. <laughs> what you look at in the Gospel of John is that the, uh, the account of the cleansing of the temple occurs near the beginning. And the other three Gospels, the cleansing of the temple takes place near the end, right before Jesus' crucifixion. So the question is, did John move his version of the story to the beginning, or were there actually just two separate events where Jesus cleansed the temple? And like all good theological debates, I propose that Alan Dave settle it either through an arm wrestling match or a foot race. But in researching it, it does appear that the majority of scholars tend to lean more towards the idea that there was only one cleansing of the temple and that it, John has simply moved it. Sorry to hear that, Dave. But uh, there is a fair number of people who still do think there was two. But the bigger questions that come out of this are, does it change anything if there was one or there was two? And the other question is, why does John have his account at the beginning of his gospel and not at the end like the others? So does belief in the temple cleansing, having one or two, does it change anything? In my view, no. Both the intent and purposes of the stories are the same and remain unchanged. And so whether you see one or two, it really doesn't functionally change anything. And you can make delineated little arguments about how it does, but ultimately, if, if reading the stories outright, the point of the story remains the same and points to the same thing. As to why does John have it at the beginning of his gospel, I'm inclined to think um, that it is entirely that John is laying out and walking the reader through the Israelite identity. Um, as we saw in John chapter 1, he goes into the creation narrative, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then now we see him coming up to the temple, and Jesus is redefining what the temple is to these people. And we continue to see other examples through John in the next like eight chapters, where he is encountering either a Jewish festival or feast or, or a significant place in their history, and then redefining what that thing is, or blowing out the categories of what it meant to them. So what we see is John showing Jesus' supremacy over the temple because he replaces the temple as the place of God's presence among man. One other thing, again, as I said, we need to keep in context is the book of John. So we're kind of in this signs and controversies part of this banner that Dave created. And what Jesus is doing through these is he's redefining people's categories. He's making big statements and very challenging claims about who he is and what he is here to do. We see Jesus interact with people in places of great significance and then blow away people's understandings of what those things were and what they represent. Things like, as we see now, the rebuilding of the temple in three days. Next week, how we see him talking about being born again, how we see him talk about streams of living water coming from within, um, where worship will take place, him healing on the Sabbath, calling God his Father, 
And one of the ones I think is the most tricky is the one where he instructs the people in the audience that they will need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That is not a, makes sense to us because we understand communion more, but that was foreign to them. That was just outrageous. Jesus is making big, bold claims about who he is in order to redefining their understanding of who God is. These statements are intended to point to people, point people to something greater than what they had in mind, or even for us, what we have, think we have in mind and what we see. Throughout the Gospel of John, there are 12 instances of the word greater in the, in the text. Three of these times is Jesus referring to people seeing even greater things than these. Our God is not a God who desires for us to live a dull, boring, mediocre life. Our God is big, he's bold, and he wants great things to happen. He wants to see people healed. He wants the oppressed, the oppressed to be set free. He wants those wrestling with addiction to be released. He wants those who suffer from depression and anxiety to live. Our God is not in the habit of settling for less. And as we will see, he does so much more in order to dwell in and with us and give us more. And the most important of that is just dwelling among us. So we need to understand what the temple's about in order to kind of move forward through the passage. We need some background. So where do we start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Garden of Eden and the creation story describe God establishing his cosmic temple in creation, where he sets all things in order and then places himself at the, as ruler and king of it all on the seventh day. What do we see in this? Why does, how does that work? Is that we see God and his creation in a close relationship with one another. God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. His presence was with them and there was no barrier. So what does this show us? What do I get out of this myself? Is that we are created to dwell and walk with God. The ideal state of humanity is to be in close proximity to our Father. And of course, a few chapters later, we see how sin had wrecked that picture and damaged that relationship. But throughout the entire biblical story, we see examples of how God still brought his presence as he walked with people. And you see this phrase that occurs in Genesis quite a few times with different characters of walked with God when around somebody's name. And that is a callback to the state of the Garden of Eden. That's supposed to make you think back to the garden, back to the garden, walking with God. So people like Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Isaac, each of these men in the, in the first part of Genesis are described as having walked with God. Living in relationship and having his presence in their lives. And then we carry forward to the Exodus story and the tabernacle. And this is probably trickier for us to understand than anything else because it's so far removed from our culture. But it's important for us to understand in order to understand more of who our God is. So when you hear the word temple or tabernacle, what do you hear? What images does it bring to mind? What feelings does it conjure up? And I think for most of us, it's things like sacrifice or sacrifices, holiness, holy place, or maybe even a feeling of separation, of division. 
Many people will also think that the purpose of the temple was a place to offer sacrifices. But what you need to hear when you hear the word tabernacle or temple is heaven and earth place. A place where heaven and earth come together. A place where God's dwelling would be among his people. See, the tabernacle was a gift to God's people because it was about create, not about creating a place where they could offer sacrifices to God and where they could come to a God who was far away and offer these things up saying how sorry they were for how they'd acted. Rather, it was God establishing a place where he would dwell among his children. Listen to how it's put in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Israel did not give God a space. God gave himself to his people. If you want to see more details of this, you can, you can kind of dig into that story a bit more. But one source I'd recommend, um, which had two valuable things, I think, in understanding this, the Bible project that we've all, from, our, from the staff, have always gone through and recommend. Uh, they have a video called Heaven and Earth, which can give you a, a good understanding of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this heaven and earth place and, and the whole story of what God's doing through all of the biblical story. But uh, they also have, a, if you want to really nerd out, they have a whole podcast on the book of Leviticus, which I know is everybody's favorite book. <laughs> But it was really, really good, and I learned a lot, and it helped me have a better understanding of it. But one quick thing that I got out of it that was really interesting for me was uh, they, def they went through the um, Hebrew definition of what an offering was. And the literal phrase in Hebrew that's used for offering is brought near thing. So the Israelites were instructed to bring near what is brought near. And if there isn't a more indication of about it being about presence, and God's presence, then I don't know what is. But that's what we need to think about with our offerings. Is it's about engaging that presence of God. So again, Bible Project, check them out. So when we continue to look at the biblical story, um, this is why the destruction of the temple is so significant. It wasn't simply that they got overrun and attacked and beaten out. It was the fact that they had so abandoned God that God was forced to remove his presence. They chose to walk away from God, and God said, okay, have it your way. And, and as, a, as a result, they were put into exile, and the temple was destroyed. But at the end of the exile, that's why rebuilding the temple was also so important. The temple was the center of their identity as the Israelites. As a people, it was not simply their center of worship, as it was the center of who they were. As a people, um, sorry, and we see this more in Exodus chapter 19, where it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because Israel was the place where God's presence dwelt, they were meant to be a nation of priests, a people who would mediate between God and man. And now we'll start shifting into, the, into what we see in Jesus. <clears throat> Again, keeping in mind we're talking about the tab temple tabernacle and what it represents. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh, and dwelt among us. 
or another way to understand this or read it, is that he took up residence or he tabernacled among us. Jesus is God living among his people. God continues his mission to have creation dwelling in his presence through the life and work of Jesus. We see Jesus living out the character of God in the flesh. And his purpose is to reestablish creation to the proper order. And that is all of creation dwelling in the presence of God. Jesus is the temple. Here in John, the story is coupled also with the Feast of the Passover. And I didn't want to gloss over this, but because it, it's actually more significant than, uh, than it looks like in the text. So just a quick bit on the Passover. The Passover is also uh, takes, is what takes place in the week of the crucifixion in the last week of Jesus' life as well. So both times around uh, Jerusalem on the front end and the back end, the Passover's tied in, and that's not insignificant. But if, uh, the, the Passover feast celebrates God's deliverance of, e of Israel from Egypt. And if you don't know the story, I'm going to give you the really, really short version. So um, Egypt is oppressing the Israelites. God tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let them go. Pharaoh continually says no. God strikes Egypt with a variety of plagues each time he says no. And this culminates in the final plague, which is the plague of the firstborn in which the, living, uh, the firstborn of every living creature in Egypt would die. But the Israelites are instructed to take a lamb and spread its blood around the doorposts of all their homes and that the angel of death would pass over them, hence the name Passover, obviously. Um, so how does this connect to what I just said? Is that Jesus is God dwelling in our midst, but he is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as we heard earlier in John. And we'll see later on through his death and resurrection. In Jesus, God completes everything that is needed in order to restore creation back to its original intent. So this is kind of some of what we needed to understand. Now we can kind of turn to the actual text. So I've only got about maybe half hour left. <laughs> Obviously not. People who know me know I'm not long-winded. So. so starting at verse 14, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So an important thing to recognize is that this event, or what Jesus encountered when he came to the temple, would not have caught him by surprise. This wouldn't have been a new thing that was happening that, that hadn't happened before. Um, so he wasn't shocked. He wasn't, uh, you know, somebody cut him off in traffic and he just flies into a rage kind of thing. Um, so what we see him actually doing here is carrying out a purification. The people who are selling the livestock and those who are changing the money over were not doing a bad thing. It was actually a good thing. They were carrying out a normal part of what is expected for people who had to travel from far away to come to offer sacrifices at the temple. It was too daunting and too hard to transport all the livestock needed for their sacrifices that over great distances. So they were able to come to Jerusalem and buy what they needed in near the temple, not in the temple, and then offer their sacrifices. So what was wrong, however, 
was the wrong place in which their good thing was happening. These merchants had set up in what is called the court of the Gentiles, which is the place in the temple where all of the non-Israelite people could come to worship Yahweh. So it is possible to see Jesus' actions as about not allowing anything to get in the way of people coming before God, not creating barriers for people to encounter him. And this is something we get good at as humans. We have a lot of good things in our lives um, that can unfortunately get in the way or take place of God or get in the way of others encountering him. And a few small examples of this are when we binge watch on Netflix or constantly scroll through social media, or other things like our work or our hobbies, and even politics. And all of these things are good things, except maybe politics. <laughs> but too often, we get these things too centrally in our lives. And they begin to crowd out the things that need to be central. It would be easy then to take this idea that and talk about how it affects your spiritual life, your relationship with God, and then keep on expounding that, as many as of, of us have heard over time. And that is an important thing to do, to continually re-examine. But I think there's an often overlooked point of view in, that, in, in doing that, and that is how does this impact others? How even the good things in our lives, and good things being in the wrong places in our lives, can impede or get in the way of others encountering God. In these verses, we see that they had literally moved something closer to the center that was getting in the way for others to come to God. And so Jesus was putting it back where it belonged. It is as he is doing this that we, he begins to speak more of what the center truly is. In verses 18 through 22, it says, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I think it's easy for us to kind of look at the story and kind of get it. But I, I think there's also just as much a possibility of us not getting it. And I tried to come up with an analogy or an example of what it would be like for these people to have gone through this thing where Jesus cleansed the temple. And I wanted to kind of talk about, like, imagine somebody coming into this room right here right now and, you know, pushing our chairs out of the way and shooing things out of the room. But it's not the same. It's not, it's not equivalent. You can get an idea of it, but it, it was a huge disruption, and it was a significant act. So they come up and ask him what the authority, his authority to do all this was, and I want to kind of rephrase his answer in a different way as to more what I think he was getting at. That he's saying to them, you tear down this center of your identity and I will rebuild it. But do you hear how outrageous that sounds, how crazy that sounds? And remember what I mentioned earlier, that through these chapters in John, we see Jesus making big statements and bold claims. And he's expanding the categories of what anybody had concepts for. 
the categories of who they thought God was and their understanding of him. Here, Jesus' answer was both an invitation and a prediction. An invitation to have them center their lives around something greater than they already knew. And a prediction in that this is exactly what happens later on. The Jewish leaders have Jesus arrested, crucified, and then three days later, he rises again. But in all fairness, it is easy to understand where the Jewish leaders were coming from. They were afraid. And we see even later on in, in John, on chapter 11, it says this, that if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. They were afraid of losing their identity. But as a result, they miss out on something greater, a greater identity. And sometimes fear stands in our way too. Because it often costs us something in order to gain something greater. In order to recognize something greater, we have to know what the center is. And for us, the question is, who is at the center? At the center of our worship? At the center of our very identity? Is it Jesus? When we place anything other than Jesus at the very center of our lives our identities then begin to create barriers. Barriers for ourselves in knowing God and who he is, barriers in allowing God to work through and in us, and barriers in others experiencing his, the grace and love that God has for them. And I realize again how bold that this sounds, to center your entire life around Jesus, because quite often, and myself especially, I'm inclined to give pieces and hold on to chunks and cling to chunks. But that is not what we are called to do. Because we are created to dwell in the presence of God, we are meant to be something great. True image bearers who reflect Jesus in all that we do. But it has to start with a desire for God. That impulse we have to experience more, to be more, to get more, that is actually our drive and desire to discover who God is and through that to discover who we are. We all want something greater, but we settle for less or good enough. And that is not what we should be known for as Christians. The biblical story is not about a God who sits far off and waits for us to finally get things right and do better. It is the story of a loving God who continually brings himself into people's lives and offers the gift of his presence. And in the midst of that, he offers forgiveness and restoration. So do you want something greater? Do you want to see that the greater things that God has in store? And I'd like to finish off by reading a few more texts um, to give you a picture again of what, we're, what this greater, some of what this greater looks like. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among pe the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
And then later in the same chapter, in verse 21, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we need to keep that picture. That we Remember that as we sung about, if the story's not done, it's not good. Our God isn't finished, but he's, he's present. And sometimes life gets tricky, and I know there, it's easy to say these things, but we all have to challenge and encourage each other as we walk this walk together. So I want to leave you with uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to read it from the message, just because I like the way he said it. <clears throat> Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on it. Strip down and start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, a cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When, so when you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again and again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives your presence. Lord, that you wouldn't settle for less and you did so much more than we can ask or imagine in order that we can know you. Father, I pray that that, that reality will just seep into our hearts and minds, Lord. The beauty and gloriousness of your presence. And Father, for those of us who might feel dry or far away from you, Lord, I pray that you bring a fresh a new experience of your presence. Lord, we are a people who want to see the great things that you have in store. So Lord, help us to truly seek you. And Lord, continue to reveal to us more of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.